You're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, episode 24, Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you for joining us tonight on the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers. Tonight, I will be your ghost host, Vincent Van Gool, and I'm here with my creepy co-hosts, Morgan Stradling. Hello. And also Chelsea Robson. Nice to meet ya. And last but not least, Mason Smith. Hey, Vincent, how's it going? If you need me, I'll be practicing my terror with ghoulish delight. <laughs> <laughs> the thunder tube. Chelsea, you, should you explain what that is? Because I think it will make lots of reoccurrences in this episode. <laughs> I went with on a little excavation with a friend of mine to a place called the Musical Instrument Museum, and they had this nice little toy store inside of random different musical instrument type things, and in it was also the thunder tube. <laughs> So you are definitely going to be hearing from this because it's awesome. <laughs> That's actually a really creepy sound. I mean, it, okay, so just putting this on the table, it doesn't really sound like thunder, but it does sound like a, like a creepy, like, I don't know, Japanese horror, like, music thing that they just do when something scary happens. <laughs> so I think it works out perfectly. I think it's perfect. It goes with oh, the theme. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't, don't put that there. <laughs> Okay, so with that, let's move to the news. There's been quite a few things happening in the animation world recently. First, there are new releases for upcoming Disney and Pixar films. So, um, you know, even three, four, five years out, Disney, maybe not five years out, but three or four years out, Disney and all the other studios, they'll kind of capture a release date spot to make sure that no one else, no other animated films, you know, will release on that day. You know, this is my spot. And uh, so there have been kind of some cool things that were released. They gave the um, Phineas and Ferb movie has been pushed back. It was last, it was going to be next summer in 2013, but it was definitely heavily uh, animation influenced during that time. So they moved it back uh, just sometime in 2014. Then the other things are there's an untitled, untitled Disney animation film. That is being released November 7th, 2014. So that's just two years away. So it doesn't say what it is, but the fact that it's two years away makes me think that this has been in the pipeline for a while, and it's something that maybe we've heard mentions of. And I'm thinking maybe this is potentially the Ron and John 2D animated film that they were working on. Do you remember, Chelsea, when we talked to them at Destination D? Yeah, well, when they were like, oh, it's super secret, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean... Super secret. Can't say anything. Bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they, they, then they walked away after that. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I have a feeling maybe it could be that. It, but then again, it could be something completely different. We know it's not Frozen. We know it's not, obviously, Wreck-It Ralph. I don't know what else it could be. So that's my prediction for that. Then the next one is November 25th, 2015, is an untitled Pixar film. Um... This could be the Dia de los Muertos film that's directed by Lee Unkrich, 
But it doesn't make sense why they would release a film about Dia de los Muertos, which is November 1st, uh, four weeks after the holiday. <laughs> I feel they'd want to capitalize that on, capitalize on that and release it in October, but maybe they're just crazy over there. I have no idea. What do you guys think? When is D- The Good Dinosaur coming out? May 30th, 2014. Hmm. So not okay, that. Okay, so, so it's not that one because that one already had a date then. I don't know. There's also another Pixar film, which is the untitled... A Pixar film that goes into the mind of a child, directed by Pete Docter, could be that. But I had, I believe that was coming out in 2015. So we don't know what this is. It could be something completely new that they've just kind of, you know, hid from us. So, anyways, that's that's that. In- There's been a lot of that going on over lately. We'll get to that later. But hmm. hmm. Okay. So next news story: Pixar released a viral website for their upcoming film, Monsters University. It's really cool. It's a website that's a, like a faux university website. So if you're going to whatever university you go to, you know, I go to ASU. Uh, Mason goes to uh, BYU and Chelsea goes to George with university. So all of us go to our respective college websites, you know, and then there's, you know, a place for admission and campus life and a store. This is the same thing. So it's a mock-up of a real university and it's pretty cool. It makes it think that, you know, this is a real place you can go. There's even like an admissions button, uh, which is pretty hilarious. They sell like the store is a legitimate store. You can buy t-shirts. This has been a big deal in the Pixar world. And I think it's a clever idea. It reminds me of when Wally came out and they did the by and large fake website, which was supposedly the uh, the big corporate Walmart Costco type of store that really kind of took over the world and led it in the the state that it was when uh, Wally came around. But yeah, so really fun there. Any thoughts on that? I think it's really cool. Like I'm looking over the website myself and it's like really really cute. Like it's just like engineered to look exactly like a college website. Is this like that Harry Potter thing where you can like? be sorted into a house, like, officially, kind of? I don't you, know. Like, do that? Yeah, like, when you click on admissions, nothing really happens. It says, I mean... Apply to MU. Apply to MU. Um, but it says rolling next semester. So maybe as we get near the um, the release date, maybe there'll be something cooler, and then you can be sorted into uh, dorms and, and kind of be interactive with other fans. But right now, not much. That's yeah. really cool, though. Like it has an event calendar, which is like CDA there's, info yeah, night. There's a child detection agency information night. <laughs> CDA will be hosting an information night in FIB's conference room on the third floor of the administration building. So funny. Hey, that's, that's pretty that's, funny. Uh, hey, that's like tomorrow. We should totally go. <laughs> I know. There's a movie night they're funny. hosting. Oh, look. You, well, there's a there's a .NET place where you can put in your net ID and your password. Really? Yeah. Huh. Is MU.net is the place students, fa- faculty, and staff get all the information they need. So it's kind of like your your little learning suite or like Cat's Web or whatever you use for, at your college. How do you get a login? Oh, that's weird. I don't know. I think that's something that will be released, you know, a little bit down the line. But until then, I mean, it's really cool. They obviously have stills from the movie or or shots of what Monsters University looks like. It's pretty. It's pretty awesome. They're definitely capitalizing on our gen- our demographic. Which, you know, I like being pandered to sometimes. So, hey. (laughs) So, very last story that we have. Chelsea tweeted me this story with the, you know, the term, the title. (laughs) Oh, yes. The tweet, the Twitterverse lit up that night. Um, With me and Chelsea. Here's what what (laughs) happened. So, I'm preparing for the best of 2012 show. Um, By the way, we'll talk a little bit more about that after this, but, um, so I'm going through and I'm listening to all the past episodes and like kind of reliving our life as rotoscopers. 
And I got to one of my absolute favorite episodes happens to be the Swan Princess episode. And I thought, hey, good memories there. And so I went in and I thought, I'll look up and see what uh, Richard Rich is doing nowadays or what else he's got on there. I went to his IMDb and I saw something that kind of frightened me <laughs> quite a lot. Um, it said the brand new Swan Princess Christmas movie is to be released in November. Yay. Directed by Richard Rich. And I'm thinking, what? What since since when this <laughs> this has not been this was not on the website when and, we did the episode we would have talked about it and hasn't um, the Swan Princess movement kind of passed? I thought so, <laughs> but I I guess the fact that we did a, the podcast on it was like, hey, it's we love Swan Princess, we do, but this is like what? So I look at it and it's got a trailer on there as well. Morgan, what did you think of the trailer? The trailer's really bad. Well, okay, so first off, this movie is not your traditionally animated movie. It is CGI. So the characters, we know the problems that happen when you convert 2D characters to CGI characters. It just doesn't work. I mean, examples are Mickey Mouse, Tinkerbell, you know, the whole, all of Mickey and the gang, and uh, lots of other things. It just, you're so used to a character a certain way, and they just aren't meant to work in three dimensions, right? <laughs> so... Yeah. So in, that's that's kind of like the shocking thing that you have to get over when you're watching this trailer. It's like, oh. But then not only that, it's really poor animation. It's just, it's it, to me, it seems unrendered and unfinished. Like, you know, typically animation, you have just four or five steps, but it's like, oh, well, we cut this step out, and it's really jarring and, and block movements and uh, video game quality, maybe even worse. And I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, why? I mean, I know it's direct-to-video, why? Yeah, I don't even understand it. And it's like, why are you bringing Swan Princess back for the Christmas like special 12 years too late? Oh, I know why. Like, because uh, when you have a Christmas special... Well, is, there even a, is there even a fan base that would be into buying a direct-to-video uh, movie uh, for Swan Princess? They're hoping. Just young girls? <laughs> uh, that's all. I mean, I looked at, and, their, and I looked at the Nest website and they had all of the information up about it. And then they also, on the official Swan Princess uh, fan page on Facebook, that's they're all about it right now, too. So it's like, I don't get it. What, what happened? Why? Oh, but we're hoping that, you know what, I'm just going to, like, maybe ignore it and kind of just forget about it. Like, I did numbers two and three, but whatever. <laughs> You know, the funny thing about this is the animation for this makes me want to go back to the crappy animation in the second and the third one. I would much rather have that than this, but it is uh -huh. what it is. And of course, we all know, I mean, I'm the marketer here. Hey, Christmas movies are a hit. You know, they, they come back on the shelves every month. You know, whether it's relevant or not, people just love to buy Christmas films, especially for their kids. Even if it's the knockoff Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas film, they don't care. They'll buy it. So I feel this, there's a market for Christmas films. And hey, why not? We have these characters. Richard Rich obviously owns them. Why not make more? But uh, for me, I, w I would like a higher quality if, if this were my shoes. But then again, hey, maybe he's got to pay the bills. Yeah, you do what you got to do. But. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're like I said, we're talking about the best of 2012 show. We mentioned this before on the Coraline episode, but we'd like to just reiterate it one more time. We've actually been getting in some, a few uh, files of people 
putting forth their opinions on the show as well as different favorite moments that they've listened to throughout this past year. And we're really excited about this show. It's going to be great. Like we said, you know, this show is kind of, it's everyone's involved. We're wanting everybody's input, how we can put the best moments of 2012 in just, you know, one short show. So there's a lot of them and it's going to be hard to choose, but we're so, man, it's going to be so much fun. Best show ever. So make sure to get all those things together. Send in a, a voice recording of yourself talking about, you know, whatever you want. And we'll definitely try and put it on the show. It'll be, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah, definitely a fun time to interact and collaborate with the fans and to have your voice be heard. We're going to hopefully get a voicemail feature on the show within the next little bit. And uh, that way you can just call in that way. Or if you have, you know, the capability on your computer, just, you know, push record, send us the file. It's it's not that hard. Some people have done it. It's been really fun to, you know, hear hear people's voices and hear and kind of interact with them in that way. It's it's pretty exciting. So I'm excited for the show because on other podcasts I listen to, this is always one of the best because... Really, a lot of times the the best moments are also the funniest moments. So this is a show where you're just going to be laughing the whole time. And it's also great to like, I mean, you guys get to hear our voices all the time, but it's really cool for us to be able to hear your voices. So that's one thing that I've I've been really excited about, too. So get on it. Send it to the email, which is therotoscopers at gmail.com. Deadline is December 1st. What, 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 what's up, boy? What's going on? They're having a wizard's duel. What's that mean? Oh, it's a battle of wits. The players change themselves to different things in an attempt to, uh, to destroy one another. They just destroy? Oh, just watch, boy. Just watch. You'll get the idea. All right, everybody, welcome to our very first wizard's duel. Now, this is a game and segment that we've come up with. It's... It's really fun, and it's a way for us to kind of just compete against each other. We've done a mini Wizard's Duel in our Toy Story episode, but we're going to do a different one now. So here is the concept of a Wizard's Duel. Two players are going to face off. In this case, our first one is going to be Mason facing off against Chelsea. And I'm going to give them kind of a topic, and then they have to think of uh, two characters off the top of their head that are within that topic and keep it to themselves, and then on, I'm going to count down to three, and on three, they're going to announce their characters. Then they are going to have to argue why that character would beat the other one in a duel or a fight or just is better than the other one in general. I will be the proctor, and I ultimately will choose which which person has the better argument. I mean, it's the election season coming around, so there's lots of debates going on, so this is our mini-debate <laughs> duel. <laughs> but it's in fun animation style. Also, another way that we can play Wizard's Duel is where they go back and forth, back and forth, like we did with the Toy Story, where they had to name all the the toys in the Toy Story series. And whoever just ran out of of toys, they were the loser, and the other person was the winner. So that's different ways we can play that. So, for our very first Wizard's Duel, in the red corner is Chelsea. Are you ready? I'm ready. And in the blue corner, Mason, are you ready? Fired up, baby. Since we are doing Nightmare Before Christmas today, this is a very simple, easy wizard stool. I just want you to pick one character from Nightmare Before Christmas, keep it to yourself, and on when I count down, then you will announce and then take it from there. Mason will have the first round. Uh, he will get to go first and to plead his case, and then Chelsea will go, and then I will pick a winner from there. You guys ready? Have you thought of your character? Ready. Ready. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> 
Say your characters. Stop. <laughs> That's too funny. Okay, I picked I picked Zero, the dog from Nightmare Before Christmas. I pick Oogie Boogie. What are we doing here? Is it a fight, a race? Now you explain who who would yeah, let's just do fight. Who would win in a fight? Okay. For this one. I think Zero would be a fine pick because of his stealth factor. He totally snuck up on Jack Skellington in the graveyard. And he's also translucent, so he could blend into walls or, you know, snow or like a saucer of milk. Yeah. And uh, plus he's a ghost, so he can go through walls and stuff. And so physically, Oogie Boogie shouldn't be able to harm him. Also, he has a red red nose, which some sources agree is actually a pulse laser device that can, <laughs> that can, that can immobilize and render useless any enemy. He can also see in dark places because of his red nose. I, he's small enough to... Uh, slip past Oogie Boogie and zap him. So that's why Zero would win. All right. Well, Oogie Boogie, I don't, I mean, I don't think you guys realize this, but he was the, he was named the rotund crooner of the decade. And so he can definitely lull you into a self, into a false sense of security with his beautiful voice and great, um, big band soundtrack that follows him around. And also because he is actually made up of multiple of many, many bugs inside, he can be anywhere and nowhere at the same time. So all the stealth that, you know, Zero may have, Oogie Boogie has, you know, he can be omnipresent. Wow. So that one's pretty awesome. Oogie Boogie also knows how to create a fan base in the kids. So you see all of these little trick-or-treaters that are around and they just want to do everything that he says. So you never even know those. Yeah. Zero may be a type of dog that is good friends with all these kids, but they're never going to do the dog's bidding. So that is why Oogie Boogie would win. Okay. I will have to say based on your arguments that I believe Mason is the winner. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't like being this person. I have to choose. <laughs> I was like an angry thunder rock. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> you forget wow, who I didn't know, I didn't know I just thunder tube. <laughs> what's more? To, what's more to be said that's, uh, that's already said? I mean, the the plush toy for Zero is a lot better than Oogie Boogie's plush toy. <laughs> well, that's Take going it. below the belt, dude. <laughs> I mean, just look yeah. at him. At him. He's, a little, he's a little plush toy. Come on. Do you want to do I, one more? I still think that the I still think that his voice would definitely um, win in this battle. But in a in a in a singing contest, probably. Definitely. Hey, I'm all about the voice these days. Yes, everything for Chelsea is about <laughs> well, Morgan, a singing. Why, why did you pick me instead of Chelsea then? I picked Mason because. I felt his argument was cohesive from the beginning to the end. He provided strengths of zero and and then tied it to directly how he could beat Oogie Boogie in a battle. While Chelsea did that, I didn't feel it was as strong. And just me as a, a viewer of this, you know, verbal fight, I, I would have sided with zero. I think just because you like the dog better. <laughs> Not true. I feel like zero is <laughs> so cute, though. I mean, come on. <laughs> Come on. All right. Do you guys want to do one more? Um, sure. Instead of just a fight, we can do like some other activity. Yeah. Like who would be, 
who would be better with the ladies who or <laughs> who would who would bake a pie better i like doing it like random mundane things that you wouldn't really think of okay chelsea do you want to do it and then me and mason will be the duelers sure oh yeah Uh oh this jeez i'm going up against morgan get ready okay <laughs> All right, so now we are going to do a round two. We are going to pick different characters. You cannot use the characters that have already been used. And we are going to have a different activity. In corner number one, we have Mason Smith. And in corner <laughs> number two, we have Morgan Stradling. Woohoo! All right, you have to pick your character first. And then oh, you tell us. Oh, pick your character first and then? Yeah. Oh, geez. Morgan, you get to go first. I pick Santa Claus or Sandy Claus. Sandy Claus. And Mason? I pick Sally. Ooh, good Ooh. thing I didn't pick Sally. That would have been awkward. All right. Now we have to decide who would be the better photographer at the Sears Photo Center. Gosh. <laughs> okay, since so I'm going first. Well, I have Santa Claus, and he is jolly, happy, and hey, he's already used to having kids sit on his lap and taking photos with them. So this time, it's his turn behind the camera, right? So Santa Claus, he just loves children, and they love him. So when the family comes in and they want their photo taken, you know, the kids, normally they're like, well, well, I hate taking family pictures, and they don't want to smile, and they're being little brats. And uh, with Santa Claus, they're just going to sit there, they're going to see him, and they're going to be smiling the whole time because they're going to be thinking about Christmas and the gifts that they want. They might even be talking to Santa and telling him their wish, telling him their wish list. And, you know, really, they're just going to all around love Santa. And, hey, maybe he'll just, you know, they can touch his button nose and his cherry cheeks. And and uh, he's going to snap the photo. And, you know, I, I have heard that Santa is quite a good photographer. Living in the North Pole, there are wonderful landscape photography opportunities. And I just imagine that in his spare time, he takes advantage of these and really is probably known pretty well on Flickr and, and all the photo sharing sites like Instagram. He's pretty popular for his photo sharing activities uh, in the off season. So it just seems like a no-brainer that, that Santa would be so much better than Sally. I mean, Sally's arms fall off and, you know, might drop the camera. And that's embarrassing. And that's <laughs> that's going to cost Sears lots of money. And they just can't afford that. They need someone who's reliable, secure, and loved. You know what? I don't. I don't know about the whole secure secure thing. I mean, Santa Claus is. Uh, you know, he's basically running around his PJs all day. To me, that's scary and not lovable. Uh, I'm going to quote from the. Uh, this is the excerpt from uh, the Witch Nightmare Before Christmas character are you online quiz, and this is if you get Sally. And I quote: "You are Sally. You'd probably rather be by yourself than with a crowd, or just you and someone special." You see what other people might not and know that you can't judge every book by its cover. So what better qualities are there for a personal family portrait photographer at Sears? This is why you want Sally, because she is concerned about the needs of the individual. And so she will place and pose and arrange every every uh, member of your family uh, just right so that there is harmony and so that this can be one of those special personable portraits that you can hang on your wall and look at it and recollect how awesome that moment was. The alleged accusations that Sally's arms are prone to fall off, um, they're, they don't have much going for them because it's not like they just fall off by themselves. And plus, she can just 
sew them back on, and it really <laughs> takes about five seconds. Instead of attacking my opponent, I'm just going to say why my my Sally is so great. Um, first of all, she's really sweet, and she's really quiet, and she actually has a pretty nice smile, and so your babies will, like, see that and look past the stitching and the raggedy clothes and just see a brilliant smile there, and they'll want to smile, too, because she's so sweet. And last of all, come on! Come on! Oh, that was a, that was a really good debate. Huh. You know, being being that this is election season, I uh, I still, I don't know, I'm kind of swayed by by the fact that, well, I'm just going to go with Santa Claus. Well, bravo, Bravo, bravo. Thank you. I'm currently undefeated. I will take on uh, rivals next, but I I kicked Mason off his throne. I'm so sorry to have ended your reign. But until next time, that is Wizard's Duel. So when you when you think of Tim Burton and you think of animated Tim Burton, you're obviously going to think about this film, and that is uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Welcome to an extraordinary world filled with magic and wonder. Open your mind and let yourself go to a place where every day is Halloween. And every night, Jack Skellington... I am the Pumpkin King! ...dreams of something different. What is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. What's this? What is this? Haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? Released in late October, you know, the Halloween season, of 1993. Good gravy. I was five years old when this came out. No wonder my parents never took me to see it. We'll probably talk about this later, but there is a fan base for this movie that is, that is, has a certain, that has a presence. Let's just say it, it is a thing. A very cult following. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a cult following. I think it has to do more with Tim Burton than this film. But I mean, I have, definitely have mixed feelings for this film. It's fascinating, and it's really funny and quirky and like Tim Burton-y dark of course but there's a i I don't know there's some there's some things that we want to address so (laughs) we'll get into that i guess uh first thing i noticed is that this film is really short only 76 minutes long yeah it's like sort of a relief right i mean some movies it's like all right an hour and a half 90 minutes and when i saw this i'm like 76 minutes that's like an hour and some you know a little bit so it was very much a get in and get out type of experience. And I agree that less is more. And if they would have tried to amp this up and make it longer, it just would have, wouldn't have held my interest as much, it, as much as it already kind of does not slash does. Um, and what we know with stop motion animation, you don't have very much time. I mean, an extra 20 minutes is an extra who knows how many more months slash years of work. 
Yeah, seriously. Not really. It's it's very uh, TV special. You know, it, it's just short and sweet. You know. Yeah. Now, I, I do think I do think they could have taken more time on a few things like uh, character development and uh, plot development, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just kind of blown away. I mean, Coraline, how long was that one again? One hour, 40 minutes. One hour, 40 minutes. So yeah, and you're right, Morgan, it, a minute of stop motion is a lot of work for animators. And of course, there's the special effects and stuff. But yeah, uh, short film, but it's got such a lasting legacy among its diehard fans. It's crazy. Um, actually, Tim Burton wrote a, like a three-page poem called The Nightmare Before Christmas, when he was a Disney animator in the 80s. Burton took inspiration from television shows like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. So he said that he was actually in a store and he was watching he was watching some of the workers take down all of the Halloween merchandise and displays and replacing it with all the Christmas displays. And he said like the juxtaposition of the ghouls and goblins with Santa and his reindeer sparkled his imagination. So that's kind of where it all started. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. that is cool. It's kind of like one of those what if movies right like hey what if halloween took over christmas <laughs> yes so it's like kind of it's fun you know now we've been we've been throwing around the name tim burton but he didn't really direct this right no actually what's one of the misconceptions with this film is that this is a tim burton directed film actually henry Selleck, who is the director of Coraline, he also did james and the giant peach you know henry Selleck is very big in the stop motion directing world you know he was actually the director. And Tim Burton just kind of wrote the story, had the original idea, and produced it. So when you hear from the makers of Nightmare Before Christmas, that's referring to Burton, right? Because he did make it. But when you hear from the directors of Nightmare Before Christmas, that's referring directly to Henry Selleck. So don't be tricked by that deceiving, misleading advertising, everybody. Um, actually, the reason Burton wasn't there, he was uh, directing a sequel to the Batman series, and uh, couldn't really get his schedules to work. I remember reading an interview with Selleck saying that Burton laid the egg, and I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hand is in it. It was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from his own style. And then later he said, to be honest, Burton came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight to ten days total working on the film, being on set. So really, when you hear that, it totally puts it into perspective. Like, wow, this like, wasn't so much Burton as it was Selleck. Although Burton did have the idea and the story and, and you know, kind of gave it to a director to finish. But, yeah, so what would you say? Is this more of a Burton film or a Selleck film? Well, it's definitely a Selleck film because he directed it, but, uh, he, like he said, he did a good job of representing the Tim Burton universe. Definitely. So this film, its budget was a uh, gaspingly low $18 million. Woo! Yeah, I mean, considering even back then, I, I imagine that they were in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and uh, the gross was $75 million. And, you know, I'm thinking, like, that's it? You know, obviously this film has a huge cult following. It's made its money back many times over with the merchandising. Uh, Disneyland, anyone? <laughs> uh, Spencer's uh, Gifts? Hot Topic, anyone? Seriously. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So, um, you know, this film is fine. Disney was very happy with the return it made because it wasn't one of these blockbuster films where they had so much invested. Eh, 18 million, it's fine. 75 million, we're okay with our ROI on that. 
This was not released by Disney, but it was released by Touchstone Pictures. And that's Disney's other label, uh, which Michael Eisner created for more of their risque and rated R films. The very first film they released with that was Splash, about the mermaid, if you remember that live-action film. And uh, they anything mm. that kind of didn't fit the Disney brand, they just sent it to Touchstone because they still wanted to make money from it, but we don't want it like associated with Disney. And I think that's really kind of changed, especially for Nightmare for Christmas, because in 2006, when it was re-released on DVD or whatever, it was under Walt Disney Entertainment. So Disney kind of said, oh, just kidding, we like you, you're awesome. Yes, you're a part of Disney, 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 Disney. Yeah, that's, that's a little interesting fact about Nightmare for Christmas. I can't. Yeah, I remember a preview for the VHS, you know, on one of my many Disney films. <laughs> and but it was for a Disney film, or was it? Probably. I think it was like for the Santa Claus. Was that Touchstone or was that Disney? That was Disney. Yeah, so it, it was something like that. Yeah, it's like I don't know. I don't know. They they they're kind of like dancing this weird dance with Nightmare Before Christmas and Touchstone. It's like, oh, once it becomes popular and something that we want, we want to take it back and change it. And you know, you're no longer the ugly stepchild. <laughs> you're you're part of us, and it makes me think like, you know, when you look at the list of the 52 animated Disney classics, Nightmare Before Christmas, James the Giant Peach, those aren't included. And I kind of wonder if they wish they would have just released it under the Disney title as a an, a Disney animated feature, because then they can kind of include that as the Disney classics. But since it wasn't, um, it's not there. And it's kind of a missed opportunity, but it is what it is. I still don't think that it, it kind of blends very well, though, with all the Disney, the Disney brand. Like, it does in one way, but... Like now that they've like incorporated it and made you think, oh yeah, now it is. But at the same time, I don't know. I guess I just look at everything in a whole and think, I don't know, it doesn't really fit, does it? Well, I mean, Disney has ESPN. At Disneyland, they have Star Wars, Indiana Jones. Obviously, they have all their uh, properties that they own from the animated classics and the live action films. I mean, I think Disney's become so big that it's like, eh, anything can be Disney, right? Like, Wreck-It Ralph. That doesn't seem, when we first saw it, it was like, uh, this doesn't seem like a Disney film. Maybe DreamWorks, but, you know, now it's like, no, no, this is part of Disney, and it it has the Disney stamp. But anyway. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So, random tangent I want to follow, guys. Will you follow me? I will will follow follow you. We will follow you to the ends of the earth. Awesome. To the very gates of Mordor. Oh, brother. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, that, more that's more a bit. great... Wow, you guys are so loyal to me. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, random. That, that apparently is the, the thunder tube for the tangent. <laughs> so, Nightmare Before Christmas fans. We haven't even talked about the movie much, but there is a cult following. We, we br- mentioned this briefly, but it is a hardcore bunch of fans who love this movie. Discuss. You know, have, you know, have they ever, have they even seen the movie? Right? I don't know if they have. How many, how many kids, okay, all, the, all those listening right now, if you have bought a piece of merchandise from this film without seeing the film, raise your hand right now. And if you, if you have your hand raised, shame on you. Like, <laughs> Like seriously, this is this is like it's like buying an ACDC T-shirt, but having never l- listened to an entire ACDC album in your life, you know. Oh, I, I, think, I think it's more. I think it's more. Uh, I'm more of a. I'm more of Thunderstruck. But anyway, um, it's the image. It's like, hey, I like Disney, but I can be a dark, creepy spider at the same time. You know, it's all about that hot topic vibe. You know, it's all about that. Hey, I'm edgy and dark and I'm going to try to bite you. Um, But at the same time, I'm Disney, so I'm not 
I'm not like a serial killer, you know? <laughs> it just goes along with the whole, like, diehard Tim Burton fan base that reminds me annoyingly of the diehard, you know, Quentin Tarantino fan base. It's like, this is, like, macabre and dark and kind of crazy and creepy and random. And just because normal people don't understand it, you know, or attempt to, you know, digest it, I am attracted to that because I'm obsessed with being different, you know? Maybe I'm being really mean here, but I think that I think Hot Topic is try, is just trying to buy your souls. <laughs> if you now if you've seen this film and and recognize it for the genius that it is, then go ahead, knock yourself out. You know, hoodies and wristbands for everyone. If you haven't, then I, I think it's just they're shooting for an image, but you don't have the backbone of actually watching the movie. Yeah, I have to disagree. You put I got put in debate mode uh, earlier, so. I think a lot of the people who are fans of this movie have seen it, I, or I would imagine or hope so. Uh, but I definitely agree with what you're saying, that the, the fans of this, you know, it's typically the the, the gothic crowd, the emo crowd. Um, you know, there but are it, goths anymore? Well, I, no, but I'm thinking back to my high school days when there were. Uh, uh, maybe it's more of a hipster thing now. Not not saying anything against it. I mean, everyone has their own demographic. But when I think of Disney fans, I think of like happy, bubbly, crazy. Love to quote uh, me and Chelsea Mason. <laughs> exactly. But and then you know, then there's the other people who you know maybe they're not as bubbly or happy. Uh, but they're still amazing people, right? But they just are into more of the darker things. And Nightmare Before Christmas falls directly into that. And it's like, hey, I'm a cool Disney fan. I love Disney, but I like, you know, I'm going to show my Disney uh, enthusiasm through Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise. You know, it's just like me. Out of all the Disney different things, I would prefer to wear maybe an Aladdin t-shirt or a princess t-shirt over maybe a Cars t-shirt. Doesn't mean I don't like Cars and I, I, I'm not a Cars fan. I, I like Pixar. I like Disney. But the way I show my appreciation for the brand is through a particular uh, set. And I think that's what this is. But yes, the, yeah. the, the fans. I think I should edit my statement to I hope they've seen the film. I hope we don't offend anyone with that. <laughs> you know, talking about goths and fans. But if you are a Nightmare Before Christmas fan and everything we've said has completely offended you, we're really sorry. But we would like to hear you and understand maybe if you are a hardcore Nightmare Before Christmas fan, why and what is the appeal and why it does it have such a broad fan base? Because that's something that really fascinates me. So email away at therotoscopers at gmail.com. There's also been 3D re-releases of the film. Has anyone seen these? Uh, no, I haven't. Crickets, crickets. <laughs> I saw it was released in 2006 and later 2007. I saw it in 2007. Um, the first release, it made a, a couple million dollars. The second release in 2007 made it uh, in the mid-teens million dollars. And then they tried to release it again in 2008 and it only made like $1.1 million. So since then, they don't re-release it at Halloween anymore in 3D. But this really was like the first... Uh, 3D, it started like the 3D craze, right? I hadn't remember any other films being released in 3D up until this point, and now Disney's like, wow, this is an easy way to make money off things that we already made money on. And so, you know, if, imagine that. If you're, <laughs> I think about it though, you've already released it, and now you're going to release it two more times just for an extra couple, you know, 17, 18 million dollars. Whoa! <laughs> That's a lot of money. All right, so let's move on to the design and the animation. Um, what I loved about this film is it really had this pop-up book aesthetic. Um, everything felt very textured and paperly to me. Uh, it was very dimensional, and I loved it. Like I felt like I could reach out to the screen and touch the different things, and I would feel 
you know, the sets and they wouldn't be more clay or just kind of plasticky, but they would really have this rich texture to them. And I think that's one thing that really that the creators were going for. But what really drew me to this film? Like, I totally agree. You know, that so everything in this movie is like really thin and like spindly, you know, mm-hmm. there's never a character besides maybe Oogie Boogie that has a lot of bulk or, or mass to their design, a.k.a. everything in every Tim Burton film. Zero is one of the best examples because he's just like this. He's like super cute, but at the same time, you're like, oh, he's a ghost. But at the same time, like, there's like not really much to him, you know? I think the character design is a great example of of taking a little and making a lot out of it. They really like bring these characters to life, how they move and their personalities, you know, and the funny lines they say during the film, during the um, the film and the songs. This movie's just like super fun. Yeah, definitely. The beginning, I think it's important to talk about this because you're kind of thrown into this world. It starts with a rhyme. And that definitely is an obvious, you know, nod to that famous uh, poem, which is plus the night before Christmas. It's also known as a visit from St. Nicholas, you know, where he starts and the whole thing's in a poem. I also got kind of a Dr. Seussian vibe from it. And I liked it. It it totally um, not what I expected out of like a horror film that, hey, we're going to talk in rhyme and this is the way it's totally fine. You know, <laughs> But uh, I liked it. It was cool and gave those nods right away to the source material, which are these classic Christmas stories. The Night Before Christmas, uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and Rudolph. I I liked it a lot, so that was fun. Yeah, and I think the beginning of the film with the rhyming and how it kind of plays out like a, like not a nursery rhyme, but like a fable or like a legend. I'm glad they didn't market this film to be like, okay, this will scare the pants off of you, you know? Um, Because I wasn't scared during the movie. I just thought it was kind of funny and and quirky how all these like scary characters were like, you know, trying so hard to recreate Christmas. Um, (laughs) I think the beginning sets that tone. Although this is Halloween, the first, the opening song is kind of scary. Kind of, yeah. Everybody scream! Everybody scream! Do-do-do of Halloween. I'll cut I like that. how throughout the whole thing, the mayor is humming that song as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. He's so in the spirit. <laughs> That's awesome. I know, and, and you hear that even more when you play, I think it's Kingdom Hearts 2, correct me if I'm wrong, um, where you go to the Tim Burton universe, where you go to the Nightmare for Christmas universe, and that's like the theme song for the levels that keeps playing over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that first song. This is Halloween. I love right after that song, there's the part where Jack is kind of, you know, uh, emo-esque, walking away, being sad, like, oh, okay, my my job sucks, or I'm not happy. <laughs> and then there's this talking in the background. It's like, our first award goes to the vampire with the most amount of blood drank in a single evening. <laughs> it's just, you I, know, love it. I love it. I love Brandon's background. Uh, this is a contest that they hold every year? Like, they just beat themselves yeah. out or something? <laughs> Hey, you gotta have- hey, whatever it is, they're super content with doing it. Every yeah, year. Right. You know, they're kind of like that Santa's workshop mentality. It's like drawing a parallel with that. You know, it's like, well, we've had a great Christmas. Now we're going to get ready for Christmas next year. Yeah. <laughs> you know? One other funny part is like right as Jack's walking away, you've got like this group of witches and it, they totally remind me of like of a group of like fangirls like encroaching in on the guy <laughs> like you were wonderful you are amazing oh man he's like uh 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 thank you uh oh let me get out of here i hope we're not like that i know but as i've been listening to a bunch of the earlier episodes i'm like oh there's so much evidence to the contrary <laughs> we are but it's okay <laughs> we'll deal with it 
<laughs> I also like when when Jack is walking and then he uh, passes these group of kind of street performers, bums. I'm not quite sure what they are. Uh, they definitely look like Muppets to me. Like I'm like, whoa, who threw the Jim Henson characters in here? <laughs> but, oh, seriously, it looks a lot like him. But yeah. one of them randomly is like, "Nice work, Bone Daddy." <laughs> That's like one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. Yeah. I know. It even made its way into the preview for the VHS. Nice. Master Bone Daddy. <laughs> I love it. I, I hope we didn't scare away, uh, scare away our, our listeners when we were like, oh, well, Hot Topic, Nightmare for Christmas fans. It's actually kind of a funny movie, and it's really cool. Of course, you got the iconic character, Jack Skellington, who has made his way into every piece of merchandise for this film. To me, he's kind of like the, one of the icons of the universe of Tim Burton. You know, yes. when you think, uh, obviously, when you think Nightmare for Christmas, you, you think this guy and then Tim Burton, you most likely think this guy, you know, right next to Edward Scissorhands and some other guy. But and uh, but yeah, I mean, he's really cool. Chris Sarandon voiced him like I've I've never really heard of him. Yeah, I hadn't really heard of him either. I had to look him up. Apparently, he's known for playing uh, Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. He was also a vampire in Fright Night and uh, also very, very known for Jack Skellington. I don't know this guy. He's old right now. He's 70 years old. I mean, I'm so sorry if he's listening. I didn't mean to call you old. But, I mean, he's an older guy, right? But- he's old. He's washed up. jeez. <laughs> oh, he's finished. But, I mean, I kind of appreciate that they didn't get these super mega stars. This might be pre that era, but it was nice. I, I mean, I, I listen to his voice and I focus on Jack. I don't focus on Chris. Yeah, totally. He, t- he definitely defined the persona and personality of, of Jack Skellington. What I love about Jack is that like he's kind of oblivious, right? Oh, yeah. yeah like when he's, he's Santa and everyone's kind of freaking out about how Christmas has gone astray. He, he's like, they're celebrating, celebrating us for doing such a good job. Oh, that no, no. This is when the um, they're fighting, the, they're shooting the cannons at him. That's he, when they're shooting the artillery at yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> like he's He's so oblivious and he just thinks, hey, I can just invade Christmas and put a Halloween spin on it because I'm good at Halloween stuff. And hey, why not? You know, like, really, you thought it was okay to kidnap uh, Santa, who's the ruler of this land, and just do your (laughs) thing? Like, uh, to to him, I don't feel like it was a moral dilemma at all. You know, he's kind of innocent in his quest. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely it. You know, I he's definitely naive because, you know, he's a first timer with Christmas, you know? Yes. And plus, I don't think he sees anything wrong with kidnapping people because he is from Halloween Town. True. <laughs> exactly. So I, so I don't know. So, And I don't know how valid that statement is because is Halloween Town's like the source of all evil or is it just the source of all Halloween? It's, I don't know. It's the source of all tricks and treats. Yes. I don't think this is necessarily... Well an, it's not an evil place. Okay. Okay. Um, now, I, I also see a lot of genius in him. You know, I see him as kind of an eccentric genius, not like not like Sally's uh, dad guy, but he, uh, you know, he's definitely got this mission and this, like, obsession with Christmas. It's like the idea just strikes him and inspires him, and he's going to do everything he can to to participate in that, you know, I love the scene before he decides to bring in Santa Claus. He, uh, he's got like this Christmas equation. that's like mistletoe over Christmas tree equals candy canes <laughs> divided by the power of peppermint. I don't know. <laughs> it's really funny. That is funny. You know, Jack Skellington actually made a cameo in James and the giant peach. Really? Yeah. Also produced by Burton. Yeah. If you, uh, there's the part where they stop at the shipyard and, uh, in the ice, and the centipede jumps into the ice water and finds a pirate ship with all these skeletons. Uh, Jack Skellington is the ship's captain. Oh, that's awesome. 
Hopefully. And he comes he comes to life and he actually like chases and tries to kill everyone. But yeah, he's in it. James the Giant Peach. Well, Chris Sarandon, he decided that he didn't want to do the singing voice of Jack Skellington because he said he didn't have a good singing voice. And so Danny Elfman, a.k.a. Simpsons composer and fame, he decided he also did all the 10 songs within this movie. And so he himself did all the singing for for Jack Skellington. Really? Yeah. And he said... He said as he was writing all those songs that it's like, oh, it was one of the easiest jobs I've ever had. I had a lot in common with Jack Skellington. I'm thinking, what in the world do you have in common with this guy? Maybe he doesn't like his job. If if so, that's horrible (laughs) because he's done lots of things. But when, yeah, when I looked at his voice, like who he was, I was like, who, like this man sounds so familiar. And I'm like, I looked at his IMDb and it's like all Simpsons everywhere. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's why I know you. <laughs> Next we had Sally. Um, she was voiced by Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara is also the Home Alone mom. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, you know, she's been in a ton of movies. Yeah, and she even comes back in another Tim Burton when Frank and Weenie, she plays the mom in that one as well. She's able to play a pretty young character. I would have had no idea that someone, I mean, I mean, she's older now than she was, but even then she wasn't, you know, super young. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, seriously, she's got this like tiny, sweet little voice. And you would have never thought. I love what I love about Sally is that she's like a very pure character. You know, she's kind of the voice of reason and sweet and nice and trapped in a horrible situation that, you know, she kind of wants to break away from. But she definitely from the very beginning sees like, Jack, this isn't a good idea. And she's never swayed in in seeing the reality of the situation. And she becomes friends with Santa later. And it's all great. But how did you feel about the love story with Jax? I don't know. Does it work? No. <laughs> that was one of the most more frustrating parts of this movie for me because the whole film Jack is like, okay, you're my friend, but I don't like you. In the same time, it's like Sally is like, I love him. You know, I have a whole song for about how much I love him and I'm so frustrated. And then like, I just don't get it. Like what made them get together in the, in the end is, you know, Jack is like, Hey, you tried to tell me I was wrong. And then you helped me get rid of Oogie Boogie. I love you. You know, <laughs> Uh, I, I just don't get it. You know, if Sally really loved Jack Skellington, she would have supported him in his crazed obsession, you know, with Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, think so. Which she kind of I mean, just well, I mean, come of- on. He only just wanted to try it once, oh, I bet. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't want to be like, I am the new Santa Claus. Move over. He was just kind of being eccentric, and he just wanted to try it, you know? He needed a change in life. No, I really don't think it worked, Only mostly because... Like you said, there was no real transition as to why Jack would like her or anything after that. It was just, it was hard for me to follow the character development in this movie. So moving on to the mayor, the perpetual hummer of This is Halloween. Um, I like when he's talking to Jack. He's like, Jack, I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. (laughs) I know everyone, everyone looks to Jack in this film. Yeah, it's like the mayor just seems kind of like the person who, I don't know, orchestrates it or kind of puts Jack's plans into motion. And he's Jack the head of the is, party planning committee. Exactly. Personally, I think he has the best job because he's not the elected official, and yet everybody still loves him. Maybe that's why everybody still loves him, because he's not the elected official. True. <laughs> I, like his, I like his character design. I don't know what he is. It's cool because his facial expressions are drawn onto the shape that he's made of. So it's not like his actual jaw is moving. It's just like a moving image that's like projected onto this like weird pear-shaped body. 
Yeah. I think that's really unique. Like, I've never seen that before. It reminded me of the kind of universal symbol for drama oh, yeah. in theater. It kind of reminded me of that. He was very, like, two-dimensional. He was either, like, on the happy end and positive, supporting, or he was on the other, which was sad, depressed, anxious. There was no middle ground with him. It's He had the masks on. It's kind of cool. So moving on to Santa, who uh, is so lovable and jolly. According to Henry Selleck, uh, they actually had Vincent Price as the original cast in Santa. Ooh. Did but- you call for me? <laughs> Vincent, come out of hiding. <laughs> no, go back into hiding. You know who Vincent Van Gogh is? This is Halloween related. There was a, um, like, when Scooby-Doo started, like, doing bad... <laughs> They made a cartoon series called The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Really? And, yeah, and it, it didn't have Fred or Velma. It just had Scooby, Shaggy, and uh, Daphne. Yeah. You know, got to have that sex appeal for what it's worth. And uh, Scrappy-Doo, you know, everybody's favorite. Oh, no. And they, they had this other kid who's kind of like a little, you know, little ethnically ambiguous boy, you know, <laughs> 90s, who... um who ran around with them and they had to what they did is that scooby found this like vase that unleashed a bunch of ghosts that are supposed to be wreaking havoc on the world and there's a magician named vincent van Gogh who's actually <laughs> voiced by vincent price in the, really? in the show uh who like helps them in their quest to to uh, get rid of them interesting cool vincent price is actually the voice of radigan as well i i didn't know that till today till i saw till i saw that we were going to talk about that that's really? awesome I just got the the DVD for The Great Mouse Detective, and I was watching the making of The Great Mouse Detective, and first off, it's really bad. It's like 10 oh. minutes max, and it jumps from, like, here's a random voice actor, here's the random girl who played that, that singing mouse in the bar, and uh, <laughs> here's some of the animation. Ooh, we use computers. And the end. Like, it was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyways, oh, but man. they had a little segment on Vincent Price, and I was like, that's cool, he's awesome, like, he's probably the better out of some of the other uh, actors you had, but they didn't even talk to like the directors. It, it was it was a very odd thing, but yeah. So like ever since I've been like, ooh, Vincent Price. <laughs> Vincent Price. I know. I love that guy so much. Yeah. So it, they Henry Selleck wanted Vincent, and he had him at first, but then it was right after the Prince's wife's death, and his own health began to fail as well. And the like the boys' performance wasn't very good. It was like really weak and frail. And the tracks had to be just deemed unsuitable, unusable. Selleck was just really sad about having to recast that role. Yeah, I would that is- too, because that's it's Vincent Price. He's pretty awesome. Yeah, he's like a no. Hollywood legend. He's he was the last legend. man on earth. You know what characters? I okay. I have a problem with these characters. Um, I think the names are Lock, Shock, and Barrel, the little yes, trick or treat kids. They are. Am I the only person who has a problem with these kids? I okay. One, I love that the little kids are like that. Little children are villains in this film. Yeah, but they're so freaking evil. Like they're evil. Yeah, well, and, you know and why? They were really annoying in Kingdom Hearts. You know, I wonder if they're like trick or treating kids who got lost and found their way into Halloween Town. Because they're still wearing their masks and stuff, you know? So maybe they're like lost souls of children who are like perpetually trick-or-treating. Here, I can read something to you from Wikipedia. Okay, please do. It says, Lock, Shock, and Barrel are introduced as Oogie Boogie's not-so-loyal little henchmen. They are all three trick-or-treaters with faces similar to masks. Their names are a play on the phrase Lock, Stock, and Barrel. Though not totally antagonistic, they are usually comedy relief. They appear as anti-heroes or merely neutral characters, and they'll do the work for essentially anyone who summons them. Neutral? They don't come within, they don't come within 30 miles of being neutral. Yeah, that's true. They just like to do naughty things. 
Um, Morgan and I have discussed this movie many, many, many times, and we've always just kind of decided that the songs were kind of subpar. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, when I first listened to this and when I tried to rewatch Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, a few years ago, to be like, all right, what's all the hype about? Like, they were just that part of me, you know? But this time, I'm not going to lie. Chelsea, don't be mad at me for kind of uh, not taking your side. But I, I, I seem to enjoy them. And I only think maybe it's a few reasons. I've heard them so many times on my iPod and then also at Disneyland on the Haunted Mansion Christmas. Those are kind of the reasons why I like it, but I don't know. What do you guys think about songs? Like, the songs aren't horrible. I just think they're really quick and really complex. Like, if you're a kid, you're not going to understand what these songs are saying. I don't know. It's just kind of like the ly- there's a lot of lyrics, and they're all very clever. And so I think because they're not simple songs, like lyrically and rhythmatically, I guess, I don't know. You know, I'm still going to stick with my, my previous statements, and I still think the songs are subpar. There are elements that catch your attention, but every other moment I've just been like in one ear off the other. And, you know, and I still don't remember them after they're done. There are very, very few songs that I can even go back and, like, remember any tune of. I think Danny Elfman did a great job with any of all the scoring, you know, but it was just, it kind of just seemed like background music the entire time. And I just didn't really, I didn't like it really at all. I think that there's supposed to be more sung dialogue. You know, it's not supposed to be a song with a chorus and a melody, right? It's just, I'm going to talk, but doing it in singing form. It's like, this is where we deliver our lines, but it's a song. Yeah, to kind of break away from what you would traditionally expect during this period of animation, where it's like, we're going to have a full song, full orchestra. You know, this is a little bit bit different. Like, we want to have songs, but we're going to do it in a different way. I think that's why it didn't really resonate with any of us. It's like, no, we want our cool songs with the genie and lights and applause. But there are, like, two songs that I still remember. Like, This is Halloween and What's This? What's This? Oh, that is by far the best song. Like, yeah. Whenever anyone, whenever I ask somebody, like, or someone asks me, like, what's this? Like, I, for automatically in my head, like, I start singing it, like, what's this? What's this? There's white things everywhere. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, what the heck? <laughs> and like, like I said at the beginning, I really like Oogie Boogie's, his song, because, I mean, he's got this really great voice, and uh, the big band theme just was different enough that it caught your attention more, and you're just like, oh, wow, okay, this is really cool. But at the same time, I couldn't tell you how it went right now. Like, I, I can't tell you how it goes. The only to- songs that I can pull off the top of my head are those two. Yeah. Uh, random tangent about Oogie Boogie. Oogie Boogie was designed after Cab Calloway, who was a famous jazz artist, and he was actually in a lot of animated films like the Betty Boop cartoons, but they would turn him into like a walrus or they would turn him into different things. And uh, he would always sing and do these jazz numbers in in these early Betty Boop cartoons. And so Henry Selleck designed him after that. To, and then obviously, you know, when he told the, the singer who was doing Oogie Boogie's voice, he said, hey, this is what we're doing. And the singer loved it and thought it was great. So it was kind of paying homage to that, you know, old school animation that like not very many people know about unless you've really studied it or taken a class or, or whatever. But really cool. So that's a random thing about Oogie Boogie and his song. Yeah, his song's kind of, I don't know, his song's kind of random. Yeah. It's like, hey, we need a song just to show that he's a jazz guy. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
I really like Sally's song, but I know Sally's song is very popular. Like, I know a lot of bands and artists have covered it. For example, uh, Fiona. How? Uh, How is this popular? Fiona Apple, Evanescence. Those are type of Evanescence particularly. Uh, reminds me kind of those, like, emo bands who are just like, oh, loathing, oh, me, why me? You know, and that's kind of Sally's song in a nutshell. It's just kind of this sad, you know, dramatic song. And it's maybe I'm crazy for thinking this. But the very end of this song totally reminds me of Jungle Book, um, kind of like the sound of Jungle Book. I can't pinpoint where exactly. At, at the end, at the end, when the girl's like, "Then I will go and fetch the water," you know, a little girl. Yeah. Is it like that kind of musical? No, motif? no, no, no. That's actually what kind of what I got from it. Kind of, but then it's also just the motif throughout Jungle Book. I I got a feeling of, but then it also reminded me of Gollum's song from Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. So oh, yeah, totally. lots of just, yeah, interesting. <laughs> when you mentioned that about Evanescence, I ended up actually going in and, and listening to the Evanescence version and she did a really good job. And I thought like really is amazing what a, a really cool orchestration and a performance will do to a song. You can really just make kind of a, a bleh song to something like hmm, kind of interesting and something you can dig. Okay, I like laughed and I still kind of like was appalled by the little trick-or-treaters songs, the Kidnap the Sandy Claus song. <laughs> I think Catherine O'Hara actually sang in this one. She's like in everything. Am I the only one who knows how horribly sadistic this song is? They say that we take a cannon, aim it at his door and then knock three times and when he answers Sandy Claus will be no more! You're so stupid, think now if we blow him up to smithereens, we may like, I think these kids are missing the point of the whole mission. Like, they're not supposed to torture and kill Santa Claus. <laughs> they're just supposed to bring him to Halloween Town so he can give Jack some Christmas, Christmas advice. Maybe that's why they sent it to Touchstone. I'm surprised they didn't change the lyrics. Yeah, obviously, definitely. Honestly. You, don't, you don't just kill Santa Claus. That's like kind of a golden compass kind of thing. It's just like a sacred thing that you just don't kill, you know? Yeah. I don't I don't know. I didn't like it. <laughs> Creepy freaking kids. I hate those. Little little yeah. Couple of scenes of note. I like it I like it in the graveyard. You got that like crazy swirly hill thing that doesn't really make any sense. It's like what is it exactly? It's the most iconic part of this movie, that's what. Yeah, it is. Seriously, like it's on the D V D, it's on the D V D cover, it's on the poster. And it's kind of weird because it kind of like unravels a little bit to let Jack down. Mm-hmm. But it's so interesting because it's like, who would have thought of this like weird, like distorted hill that's more like an ice cream cone, you know? <laughs> and it, it kind of has a life of its own. Very I don't know. Cool. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. Life side shout out to that little that little hill. <laughs> shout out to the hills. Okay, I laughed so hard when they like duped Oogie Boogie. With a little leg, you know, and he's like, whoa, what do we got here? Gucci, gucci, goo. It was really funny. I'm like, well, I guess Oogie Boogie does have that personality. It's awesome. It's kind of random, though. I was like, okay, isn't there some other way? So lessons and morals of this movie. I, I don't feel like there's many. I think it's kind of like grass isn't greener on the other side. But what I kind of got from this, it's like stick with what you know best. You know, it kind of a, a global specialization type thing. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. You know, if I'm in America and I'm really good at making widgets, right? And then someone in China is better at making 
this other thing. Like, I, we're both better off together and more profitable and effective when we both specialize in what we're good at and we stick with it. And then we trade. Then both of us have a surplus and both of us are able to grow financially, right? And and increase our living. I kind of saw that. It's very uh, marketing business of me, but I kind of saw that like, okay, well, stick with what you know best and let the other guys do what they're best at. And then in the end, if Santa's good at doing his thing and Jack is good at doing his thing, then the townspeople in the world as a whole are better as a result because they're getting the best of all these different worlds. So, and business rant. I love your business rants. <laughs> you know, I didn't really get a moral out of this one, and I hope what you just described wasn't the moral of the film. I don't but, think so. Um, I don't know. I think there may be a theme that, like, you can do something a different way, and it can still be fun. Because, like, Jack had good intentions imitating Christmas. So maybe it's just one of those, like, you know, acceptance for different people thing, um, <laughs> which is great. But I don't know. I just didn't detect it, you know? It's not like I needed someone to walk up at the end of the film and be like, and that is why you always twist your friends, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't really see it. Like, it's not like the movie didn't have a point. It was really cool. Uh, I just didn't really get like a concrete theme out of it or a moral. Totally. Totally. And that's okay. Yeah, Do it movies- was just more of a legend type thing. Yeah. So sequel talk. Apparently in 2001, Walt Disney Pictures wanted to develop a CGI sequel. Again, this is no good. You don't do that. <laughs> oh. um, but Burton like put his foot down and said, no way, Jose. You know, thank goodness for that. I mean, what is he going to do? He's going to go to Thanksgiving Town next? Like, great. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of ruins the purity and the genius of the first film. Um, Making Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a chicken, not a turkey. But yeah, it's just kind of random. So I think it's really important when we're talking about this movie to talk about the Haunted Mansion holiday at Disneyland. So in Disneyland, between late September and early January, uh, Jack Skellington and the whole Halloween Town gang take over uh, the Haunted Mansion. So there's this big Nightmare Before Christmas overlay that goes on the thing, and it's talking about how, essentially, you know, Jack wanted to, he saw this dark and gloomy place, and he wanted to brighten it up a bit and make it... Uh, more fun, more Christmassy. And um, it opened October 3rd, 2001, which was eight years after the original release of the film. So apparently this this film had enough legs to keep going eight years after. And they said, hey, we still have fans of this movie. Let's turn it into a ride. Um, they wanted to do a Christmas Carol overlay for the Haunted Mansion, but they thought it was kind of weird with, like, bringing Santa Claus into it, which I don't really get because Nightmare Before Christmas is, like, brings in Santa Claus, and then for the holiday parade, they bring in Santa Claus. So that rationale kind of went over my head, but, yeah, it's really fun, and it's definitely kind of a cool part about Disneyland when you can go. Did you, have you ever been to it? Yeah. Oh, sweet. Have you? Yeah, it's really cool. Like, a couple years ago when we met Cameron. Yes. And it was December and we went and saw this. I thought it was really cool. I thought they found a really good thing to do with the Haunted Mansion because the Haunted Mansion is awesome as it is. But, you know, adding it, it really did make it better. And it's it's a total tie into this kind of is their sequel, right? Like instead of him taking over Thanksgiving Town, he's taking over the Haunted Mansion. But it's in a more real way uh, without kind of hurting the integrity of the original film. So if you ever had the chance to go, Haunted Mansion Holiday is actually pretty awesome. Like, I like the original, but I do really like this as well. So 
cool, cool. Yeah, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to Disneyland and Disney World, so we'll see how it compares to how much I love the Haunted Mansion. Well, yes. So I have one last question for everybody. So who is the real villain in this movie? Because I, I would say, like, at the beginning, it's kind of Jack, because he's going to great lengths to become Santa, to kidnap him and change the status quo. I mean, I guess he's trying to do it in an altruistic way. Um, but then later it becomes Oogie Boogie, and Oogie Boogie's just sort of, like, dragged into this big mess, and he's okay with yeah. it. Um, he, I didn't feel he had a vested interest in the whole Santa thing. He's just like, I'm a I bad think he's guy. he's just more than happy to be nasty and mean. Exactly, which, I mean, I guess some people just have that those intentions and personalities, but, I mean... I don't know. I didn't really... I saw him as a villain, but I'm like, he already was a bad guy and will do anything bad. So it just... There was this contrast of, like, who is the bad guy? Like, Jack is a bad guy for what he's doing, but he's not the bad guy. (laughs) Does not mean you are a bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That quote never gets old. It doesn't. And we're going to be saying it forever, I'm sure. You're right. Oogie Boogie's just kind of there because they needed a bad guy to capture Santa Mm -hmm. and to be defeated. I don't know. I don't see Jack Skellington as a bad guy. I just think he's like this eccentric dreamer who is just trying to do something different for once to kind of brighten his workspace. I don't know. Yeah, I think this is probably the main reason why I didn't like Nightmare Before Christmas. And I just felt like the characters were so underdeveloped. You know, the characters were very flat and the story was pretty weak as well. Like, um, the only reason Jack wants to do Christmas to begin with is because of boredom. And that's just really not a compelling reason. Like, I don't care <laughs> that you're bored. When I went to see Frank and Weenie, all I could think was, like, Tim Burton equals Nightmare Before Christmas. And I didn't even know why exactly I didn't like Nightmare Before Christmas. I just remember never really liking it. So when I went to Frank and Weenie, I was just like, eh, uh, whatever. I don't really have very high expectations for it, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. But in the end, I really liked it. I really liked Frank and Weenie. I was trying to think about it now, and I realized why. And it was because the characters were very unique and pretty memorable, you know, and they didn't have to, like, do too much development with them. But you knew why he wanted to bring his dog back to life. And it was just a really compelling reason that pushed the story along and something, you know, that we could also relate to a little bit as well. So I think that that's that's my rant on what I thought of the movie. Okay, so let's rate the film. I'll go first. So in the past, I've really struggled with this movie. And I remember Chelsea and I in high school, we were like, this is cool. Let's watch it because everyone thinks it's so awesome. So we borrowed it from my friend who had like the collector's edition. And um, he was like so happy to lend it to us. And then we tried oh, to watch Oh, I remember that. He was like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it must be good. Yeah. And I just, I, it's always been a chore trying to watch this movie. And to be honest, I actually kind of enjoyed it. I didn't find myself bored or struggling through it, but I just still, I'm not a lover of A Nightmare Before Christmas. I just don't really relate to the source material. And I don't think it has a lot of replay value for me. I mean, maybe it's a good one once a year, Halloween time. I wouldn't want to pull this one out during Christmas time though, but Halloween would be okay. And just for those reasons, just my lack of involvement in the movie and the characters, I'm just going to give it three stars. And that is so sad for me to give because I'm usually so positive, even if it's not very good. But I I have to be critically honest here and um, open and I'm going to give it three stars. It's so funny. I remember Morgan and I were talking about it one time. It was just like, she and I really aren't very good critics because (laughs) we almost always love it. Yes. And if we don't love it, we just 
we love it less. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We're like, we love it. It was great. Sure, why not? But you know, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. It was the first of its kind in style and in theme, I think. It definitely made a mark when it came out, and it definitely opened up the doors for a lot of really cool things to follow. The concept is really intriguing. I just felt like it had a really weak story, and um, I'm going to give it two and a half stars. Ooh, Ice Woman. Proud <laughs> of it, babe. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to give Nightmare Before Christmas three stars. I think this film had a lot of potential and it didn't reach it despite being really funny and, um, you know, dark and, and unique. And, you know, it's got that Tim Burton universe, but I'm just going to do three stars. There we go. So that is our review and discussion of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. If you have been shouting at your iPod and people around you think you're crazy because you've <laughs> you've been yelling trying to disagree with us and let us hear your points, email us if you love The Nightmare Before Christmas and you think we and our opinions are completely insane and you want to defend The Nightmare Before Christmas, send us an email, let us know. We Like, honestly, I really want to hear, like, the other side of it. Like, I'm, I'm kind of not sad that none of us liked it, but it would have been cool to have, like, a Nightmare Before Christmas fan on this podcast so I could see the light and I could see the other side. But So send us an email <laughs> at therotoscopers at gmail.com and we would be happy to read it on our next episode. But until then, that is our discussion. It's time for mailbag! <laughs> okay, so we, this is our mailbag for today. First off, we have Pablo Ruiz. The subject is Pixar Artist Masterclass. Message, hello to my fellow animation fans. I attended the Pixar Artist Masters class that took place in Vancouver on September 27th and 28th. And while I can't give a detailed description of everything that happened because they asked us not to, I thought it would be fun to write a small review for you guys. The first day, Matthew Lund, animator on Toy Story, and story artist for Toy Story 2, Monsters, Nemo, Ratatouille, Up, and Toy Story 3, talked about the story and storyboarding. This is the man that came up with the way for the fish to escape in the tank in Finding Nemo, or the way for the toys to cross the street in Toy Story 2. He told us everything about storytelling. Ooh, everything, huh? <laughs> and how we should focus on characters. He gave us tips on how to create characters that feel real, and gave us examples using characters from Pixar movies. Oh, of course, push your own stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I think that's why they're there. <laughs> It was all very interesting. At the end of the day, the head of Pixar Canada gave a short presentation, and we got a screening of the insanely funny Partysaurus Rex, which was animated here in Vancouver. What up, fishes? <laughs> <laughs> day two focused more on animation. Andrew Gordon, who has animated in A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, Toy Story 3, and currently Monsters University. So, most... All of them? Yeah. <laughs> he gave an amazing talk on how to be a really good animator. He showed us examples of shots he animated for all these movies to point out facial expressions, hand gestures, etc. He talked a lot about how much an animator has to do to give a good performance. It was very interesting to see how much detail goes into every single shot. He also showed Pete Doctor's student reel, and it was about this old man, very similar to Carl from Up, who was annoyed by this girl who was playing outside. The girl imagined herself flying a plane, fighting pirates, and building boats. We kept seeing what she imagined versus what was actually happening. 
I wonder if Pixar's movie that takes you inside the mind is based on this. I hope this was interesting. Long live Pixar, <laughs> Pablo. And you can find him at, at PabloRV7 on Twitter. Thanks, Pablo. Man, that's really cool. I wish I would have gone to that. I talked to a guy this last week. He went on the Pixar's version of the Disney Cruise. Really? Yes. I talked to him last night, and I was so jealous. He's like, yeah, we just got off of a vacation, you know, off a cruise ship. So, you know, I'm like, oh, where'd you go? Oh, we went to, you know, all across California and Ensenada, you know, da-da-da. And I'm thinking... Which cruise was this? <laughs> I was like, oh, so, you know, the Disney cruise. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> tell me, tell me everything. He thought it was really super awkward and strange, I'm sure. But <laughs> we made friends quite quickly. That's awesome. But, yeah, so this sounds like a really op- great opportunity to be able to go to this master class of Pixar. Um, it was in Vancouver, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, thanks, Pablo, for writing and sharing with us as much as you could. I know you would have written, you know, a novel telling us about what you learned. But, you know, great opportunity to go and learn from the masters and kind of improve your skills. And, and you know, if you want to get in the industry, this is a way to kind of get your foot in the door and, and meet those people. And it sounds like an incredible event. So thanks for updating us on that, because obviously we can't go to every single animation event that we want to, but that's why we have you guys. So, you thanks, know, if you, Pablo. Yeah, if you've also gone to something similar to this or, you know, an animation conference or festival, tell us, email us about it, and we will definitely feature you on the show. Well, in today's mailbag, we have a message from Georgie. And she says, Hey guys, I only discovered you about four episodes ago on Hypable, but I am in love with the podcast and I have listened to all of your previous episodes at least three times during study hall. Whoa. Wow. Overachiever. (laughs) You guys are hilarious and all of your discussions are super interesting. Loving the nineties nostalgia. Keep up the awesome (laughs) podcasting, Georgie. (laughs) We can thank Chelsea for bringing that up. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just never grow up, okay? <laughs> I will stay in my 90s, and I'll be fine. Yeah, and I'm really glad that, you know, people are still finding us through Hypable, and, you know, because I listen to a lot of Hypable podcasts, and I always thought, oh, we'd be perfect on there, like, their audience would be perfect, and just, you know, so it's glad to see lots of Hypable fans say, yes, we like you a lot, you're, you're part of the, the team. Uh, so here's our next uh, email, it's from Kisa, and the subject is Anastasia says, hi, I'm a big fan of the podcast and listen to you guys on the bus to and from school. I just want to clarify a few things you all seemed unsure about in the Anastasia episode. First, if you rewatch the scene, only the engine and baggage car of the train fall off the bridge. The other part of the train slowed down behind them as there is a shot of it slowing. Yes, I knew that. Uh. That's what I thought. (laughs) Secondly, Vlad was a member of the Imperial Court and simply a nobleman. He was not, as Mesa hypothesized, part of the military. Good guess, though. That would have explained his absence from the ball at the beginning. That's true. Thirdly, while Kirsten Dunst did speak for eight-year-old Anastasia, Lacey Chabert sings for her. Also, Anya remembers hardly anything because she smacked her head on the railroad tracks after being lifted onto the train at the beginning. That's a long way to fall, and it's gotta hurt. Additionally, the palace was not where Dimitri and Vlad held auditions. They held them at the theater, according to Vlad's line in Rumor in St. Petersburg, where he says, well, Dimitri, I got us a theater. And it's just a tidbit, but they did make a spin-off movie for Bartok, but it didn't have the pink bat. It's called Bartok the Magnificent, and it actually wasn't that bad. That's all I wanted to point out. Thanks. Keep making great episodes. Well, thanks, Kisa. You know, those were a lot of the different questions that we had on our Anastasia episode. 
And it's cool that you went back and tried to find those answers for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, and you know about Bartok the Magnificent. I've never actually seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't. But that is one of the the sequels that Don Bluth did actually do for his franchise. So I think that's one more more of the reason why it's better than maybe Land Before. Three, yeah. five, seven, nine, twelve, seven. <laughs> you know that he actually had a, a. The original creators were apart rather than just yeah. you know the the C team. <laughs> so yeah, we'll have to eventually get around to that. Yeah, we'll have to do that one eventually. concludes our episode and also our Halloween spooktacular. Well, thanks, Vincent. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, go to therotoscopers.com slash 24. That's the episode number. Wow, 24 episodes already. I know. Woo! I know, this we're is awesome. We're almost to 25. Um, do you remember when we were, like, so excited that we had, like, the fifth episode? Yes. Which was the fifth episode? Toy Story. Toy Story? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so we've uh, we've come a long way since then. Thank you so much for our loyal listeners who have been listening since episode one. Thank you for new listeners who are who are just getting into the podcast. We hope we can cater to your your addiction needs as far as uh, animation goes. Also on the website, we've been getting a lot more art books to review and DVDs. So go check out our review section of the website, which is therotoscopers.com backslash reviews. And you can hear... Not only our thoughts on new films like Frankenweenie and Paranorman that have just come out, but also on animation memorabilia and, and products and merchandise that are coming out. For example, I had a chance to review the art and making of Hotel Transylvania and also two, two books about Snow White and kind of the art behind Snow White because it's the 75th anniversary since the release of Snow White. And of course, there's all sorts of DVDs we've had the chance to review. The Cinderella Diamond Edition, uh, The Great Mouse Detective, and oh, my favorite, which is not animated, but it, they still send it to us, is Beverly Hills Chihuahua 3, Viva La Fiesta. Oh. <laughs> Add that to the catch and fire. <laughs> True. Yo quiero Taco Bell. So um, my review is not quite raving for that one, but for some of the other things, it's really cool. So if you're wondering, like, eh, should I buy it? Should I not? Definitely check out the reviews. We also have a new part of the website, which is our Support Us page. You can click on it. It's at the top. It says Support the Show. And it provides three different ways that you can support the show, which we've mentioned. Um, first is the Donate button. You can donate anywhere from, you know, 50 cents to $100 or whatever works for your budget. If you're a fan of the show and you've listened, um, we really appreciate anything that you can do to help us out, to keep the show going and to keep the production costs low. I know I donate to podcasts that I listen to. Um, you know, if let's say I want to buy a DVD or go to a movie. It costs, what, 10 bucks. I sort of equate it to the same thing. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to donate 10 bucks to the show because I like it and I support it. So definitely that's one way to support the show. Another way to support the show is to go to audibletrial.com backslash the rotoscopers and you can get a free audiobook. And, you know, we get a little credit for sending you there. And then lastly, this has been on the website, but we haven't really talked about it, is we have an Amazon.com affiliate link. So what you do is if you're buying anything on Amazon, maybe you're buying Frankenweenie when it comes out or Brave or these new art books, you just click on our link 
and then just go and continue shopping as you normally shop. And what it does is, you know, we get a little credit for sending you there and then you still get the same awesome prices, but we just get a little credit for, you know, sending you to Amazon. And it's just like a really easy way to support the show without having to pay anything extra. Like you're already going to buy these movies. Just click on the link before you do it and shop that way. For example, someone bought American Psycho and they used our link. And thank you person who randomly bought that movie because that helps support the show and keeps the show going for future episodes and generations to come. Thank you everybody for your support who has supported us in the past. It means a lot and uh, hugs and kisses to all. (laughs) (laughs) That always gets me. Also on the website, don't forget to enter our contest we're having to win one of the two Snow White art books that I just talked about. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the art and creation of Walt Disney's classic animated film, and the fairest one of all, the making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So Weldon Owen has given us one copy of each to give away to our fans. So all you have to do is go to the rotoscopers.com and go to the news section. And it's one of the first posts under giveaway. You have until midnight on October 31st to enter. So once it's November, the contest is over. And all you have to do is just do a few things. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. And it's really easy. Then it'll be put into the drawing. So good luck to everybody who enters. All right, guys. Have you guys watched any good animation this week? No. Oh. I'm just kidding. Ugh, awkward. <laughs> you know, I kind of equi- equivalent. Mm, I sort of equivalent. Sort of equate. Equ- I know, I know, I know. It's just not coming. <laughs> oh, the reason why they're so evil is because I think they're Oogie Boogie's kid. His children? Yes. <laughs> Isn't there some sort of like Thor diet that he did for that movie? Supposed to make you big. Lots of hours at the gym, lots of protein shakes and chicken, essentially nonstop. Just, Mm. I remember Taylor Lautner saying when he was training for the second Twilight film that he would just have a cooler in the backseat of his car filled with chicken, and he would just randomly grab the chicken and just gnaw and chow down on it, you know, werewolf style. Um, (laughs) And that's how he. That's how he poked up. Yeah, he would be hunching over the thing, you know, and just gnawing at it with his teeth. So that is an option, but I, I don't think it's for you. Thanks, Morgan. Be sure to bring your death certificate. 